Hello everybody, this is Twitchy Max and you're listening to season two of the family-friendly podcast Expired XP. This season we explore the world of gaming through insider interviews, new and retro game specials, and points of view on industry trends. If you like games, this podcast is for you. This week we have part one of a two-part special where we talk to Benson Russell, an industry veteran who designed the famous Omaha Beach level in Medal of Honor and worked on Last of Us. Enjoy. Welcome everyone to the Expired XP podcast. Uh, you're here with Useless Viking NZ and my compadre in arms. Hello. Twitch Bucks here. <laughs> Hello. I love that. Low eh? key. Very low key. You can take you can take you can take the Englishman out of England, but you can't take England out of the Englishman, can you, Rich? No, you can't. You can't. No. So <laughs> look, this this is one of my favorite types of episodes. <laughs> and that's exactly why this is what going to be one of my favorite types of episodes because as you could hear we've got somebody here and i'm very very excited to introduce the following person to you and look uh, benson benson russell uh ex naughty dog dude and just a general uh, game industry affascinado do you want to kind of uh, talk a little bit about yourself and introduce yourself in an interesting and exciting kind of way oh um nobody <laughs> I just took your intro and went. Okay, thanks yeah, for listening, everyone. We'll see you yeah, next that's week. End of the podcast. Have a good day. Thank you very much. Yeah. To see her. Bye. We'll delete this one. Uh, <laughs> no, I, I've been doing this for like oh my god uh, since 1998. I have. I used to just say like 20 years, and I'm like, no, that's beyond that now. Well, technically longer than 98 because, um, as I put up on my Instagram a little bit, there's. Uh, I've been reunited with some of my TurboGrafx 16 memories things that nice. I because I worked there like it was a uh, NEC the call center for it was based out of Illinois where at night where I lived and I got a chance to work on the call line so way before the internet it was like you'd call us like Nintendo Power right and then like we would give you tips and hotlines and we you QA some of the games and stuff yeah okay. so that was pretty that's cool official, that's my official first start in the game industry which puts me all the way back to uh 89 yeah i mean okay so that's look, pretty that, that just crazy. shows that you're older than us which is great that makes us oh. feel better <laughs> have you still I don't know, got the manuals? i don't know if there's i, I don't know if there's any oh, oh, yeah. the video for this oh so yeah. that that was that's one of cool. the things and then uh this was another so we got two mugs and i was this is what i was reunited with recently because i wow. i they were at my mom's house for the ages in illinois and then so for those listening, uh, Benson was just showing us, sorry, for, for those who can't watch, um, oh, Benson was showing us off some, some of the mugs from Turbo Graphics, which is, uh, they just felt like such a nostalgic, seeing that logo actually felt like nostalgic even for me, my heart jumped a beat. Um, and I, the, the last thing I have, by the way, is a, they, we got all jackets with our names embroidered on them and I still have it. It's just in a closet and I won't go oh. dig it up right now. Oh, that's, that's cool. amazing. So, Do you have any of the manuals that you had to go through to give them the game tips? Uh, I actually, I want to say I did because um, so one of my mom's neighbors packed a bunch of stuff she had sitting on her on her uh, kitchen counter before she had to go away because she was in she's in Illinois and I live in Texas now uh, and at the time I was in California so it's like I couldn't move her I had to do it all remotely which I I do not recommend I recommend against that if you can avoid it at any point in your life it's not a fun experience no uh, she's fine now obviously but um it was kind of touch and go for a bit there I'm like how are we gonna get this done but yeah I want to say I think I found one of the um the folders like I have a, a black graphics logo folder that we all had and some of the the notes in it 
um, I was the one that, uh, because this was all new back then. So like, I remember when we got the game Ease, Y apostrophe S. So it's like Ease book one and two, whatever it was for the TurboGrafx, the CD game. And uh, it was such a long game where like, I don't know how we're going to give, like, how are we going to write all these tips down? So I was, I went through, because I was one of the few people that had a computer at home back in the day. This is, again, this is like 80s, right? So my dad was into computers and I got lucky to get a hand-me-down from him. So I just went into like some crappy, was it WordStar or whatever freaking word processor it was back then. Uh, And I just, it had column mode. So I literally Uh wrote up all the hit. I wrote up every single hint. And then on the other column, I put like, headers so they could find like oh yeah scroll like scroll flip page because again this isn't even on the computer it was all printed out in a giant booklet of like <laughs> oh yeah they want to know about this thing oh here I, I i wrote up exactly like here's how you can get past that here's tips and, tricks to do. Oh, and then they would print out photocopies yeah we had a binder with like here's all the cheat codes for all these games and stuff like that so it was and the other I cool mean, thing was we got um we did qa testing because it was based off the PC engine in Japan. And so what they did was um, we had these little cards that had EEPROM slots on it and they would download or they would mail us or they would download over whatever slow, well, DSL lines, I guess they had back then in the company sense. And so they download the software and we burn them into the EEPROMs and we had these beta versions of the Japanese versions of the games or whatever they're working on. So we'd either test some of them to see if we could find bugs or we played them and said like, Hey, is this a good game to bring over? Cause the PC engine had this giant library of games and they're like, well, what would work here in this market? What wouldn't, uh, they didn't listen to us, but yeah, somebody wrote a, there was an uh, article about this that, uh, I want to say it came out in the last year. Somebody wrote a behind the scenes, like what happened to turbo graphics and why it rise and fall. And it was like, yeah, they're pretty dead on accurate. Whoever, wherever they got their information from was like, that was one of our biggest complaints is we kept telling them like, Hey, get this game. This game's popular in the case. Cause we all played yeah. our, our division was like, we had kids like me that was like 16, 17 years old to all the way up to like 54 year old people. Like we were, and we're all just gamers and people that wanted to come in and work in the hotline. So we were all giving them giant opinions of like, you should get this game, get this version of the game and get this version yeah. of the game. Uh, and they just, I don't know for whatever reason they didn't listen. They either they couldn't get it due to licensing reasons, or maybe they just didn't listen. They had their own mindset on what they wanted to do at well, the time. But because TurboGrafx was NEC, right? So that's a Japanese two point as a Japanese company. I mean, and I think it, you know, Richie and I touch a little bit about. They obviously got a very different corporate culture. Like we know this from Nintendo, from yeah. everyone we see that it's that's a very different corporate culture to be part of. But. Like so, I want to kind of, I want to, be, I want to bring you back in further now. I, I, I'd love oh to hear what was your first memory as a gamer. What were the things that you would play as a kid, and how did that then translate into you wanting to work in some way in the industry? But do you remember kind of the first or favorite uh, games that you would play as a kid? So, I, I have mem- I have memories and phases about this. So the first yeah. one was. I do remember when I was a kid and every now and then I'd see an arcade game. Like, so at our grocery store, Donkey Kong was there at, I remember we were, when I was out, we were like traveling. My parents divorced when I was really young. So like sometimes I'd spend a month with my dad or whatever. They would go camping or we'd travel across country or whatever. I just remember there being like, oh, there's like a Space Invaders machine. What the hell is that? And there was even like an arcade Pong machine. Like I remember seeing that. So that was like kind of like, my first vague memories of remembering seeing those things and going, what is that? Um, 
and was then this also, in the eighties, Benson, or was it before? Yeah, 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 eighties. Okay. I, I was born seventy three, so I'm okay, total yeah. Gen X. I'm total Gen X, like not quite fifty, almost. Yeah. Um, but it's like, uh, so yeah, seeing the arcade games in the seventies and the eighties pop up, uh, and then we got a pong machine at home, so that was with the paddles. Played the little pong machine. Uh, my dad, because he was he worked in the computer industry. He worked for, I want to say Zenith was one of the first jobs, one of the jobs he had doing that. Um, so I, he, even after my parents divorced, you know, I'd, you know, I'd see him every couple of weekends or whatever. He'd introduced me to a lot of computer stuff uh, because that he would have access to. And then eventually I started getting hand-me-downs uh, from him. Like, um, you know, I got a 8086 computer with a freaking full size five and a quarter uh 10 meg hard drive which was like unheard of back in the day i was like, gonna that say that's cost. mental yeah and i just didn't know what it was because like i remember like having to boot up computers so i was learning on the machine and i i screwed up the uh the auto exec dot bat file once because i was just mucking around <laughs> and oh, I, it wouldn't boot up and i was like telling my dad I'm like how does it know how to boot up and stuff that's a hard drive and he had to explain it to me that there's the stuff is stored on it and i was like oh okay because i'd never heard of a hard drive before it was either no ti 99 with tape decks you know the tape deck whatever but anyway so he's i was playing games when i would go to his house he'd have like the zenith equivalent of the trash 80s um that era of computing where it's all monochromatic either you know various gray or green the screens built in with the really clackety ridiculous uh 2001 looking monitor you know and all <laughs> that kind of crap and so i was playing all kinds of I, it just goes to show you that these are games that I don't think were being sold on it necessarily, or if they were, I don't know who was making it, but it's like all these old games he had on there, like a Robotron clone and stuff. So clearly somebody, even in the early days of computers was making games on them uh, in such a way. Cause these were, these are things like most people wouldn't have them at all uh, in their homes and stuff like that. My, I think my, my wife and kid just got home. We'll close the door here in a minute. Um, so but anyways, so there was, I was introduced with that. And then eventually I think my first system at home was an Intellivision. So I had the Intellivision, uh, a, friend, yeah. a friend of mine at school had the ColecoVision and another friend in my apartment complex had the Atari 2600. So we had the trifecta between the three of us and we would just change, you know, alternate going to each other's houses and stuff. And as a, as a joke, one day my my parents started asking i don't know what age i must have been you know nine or whatever what do you want to be when you grow up and i just said video game developer and i didn't say anything any of that. i was a kid but i remember seeing oh that's right i think it happened because there was a there was a chicago you know like uh, what is it williams pinball and stuff i want to say it was based out of chicago um and or and a couple of other like uh, the arcade makers yeah um and there was a segment on the news about video people making games for the arcades and there was like the you know there was there was a game that was just coming out called the red baron or whatever um so i want to say it was like vector graphics based or something but they were they were, they were showing and interviewing the people and i think that's kind of that little imprint was like the first time i was like oh this is an actual thing you can be oh i want to do that and I, again nothing I, I completely forgot about it went into like I didn't know what I wanted to be throughout high school. Um, I thought eventually, then eventually I settled on being a commercial airline pilot, went to school, Southern Illinois University for one year, uh, grants and stuff like that. And I didn't want to saddle myself with a bazillion miles of debt. So I came back, started going to co local community college and I was going to be, I wanted to get into music. Um, 
And uh, so I started taking music theory classes. So I wanted to get into rec uh, like rec music recording engineering, like that kind of stuff. Yeah. Music, like being, I figured if I, it, it, cause it was such a cutthroat thing to get into that I'm like, well, if I have musical background, maybe that'll give me an, an advantage to being able to intern at a studio because I can read the sheet music and whatever and go around with these people. Uh, and as I was working my way through that and just doing like whatever jobs, uh, by this point, you know, we were up to like what 46s or first Pentium or something. And yeah. Doom came out. And my buddy Brian Isolo, who goes by the name Squirrel, teaches at SMU. Um, he's kind of a little infamous in parts of the industry around that time. He, uh, John Romero, just formed Ion Storm. And he was like, damn it, he was a really good programmer. He still is, um, but he just he teaches now rather than makes the games. And so he on a whim and us encouraging the living, me and my friends encouraging the living crap out of him, like saying, you should just reach out and see if you can get a game. He wrote, he knew what a, what a he, the, you know, Romero and, and Tom Hall and them were into like D&D &D and all kinds of stuff. So he just wrote an email that was like this, a crafted story of like, there's a mage trying to contact this other mage and he could program and all this stuff. And he wrote it and John Romero wrote him back in the same way. And basically saying like, basically saying like all right you got to show me what you're capable of you know and then i'll consider it this is in, this is it basically got his attention yeah and he was in, through that got a job he got job left illinois and went to go work in the industry and he said and i was kind of like well heck with it if he get a job then i'm gonna try and get a job so that's when i started making quake levels uh and i started putting them up uh, i had a couple up and then one of them was a deathmatch level and a single player level that got decent reviews and um the guy that founded 2015, uh, he basically, he was friends with the people at Ritual Entertainment. And so they started making the, they were going to make, they were making Sin and they were automatically looking for a company for Activision to make the official add-on pack for Sin. And so since this guy was friends with, I think it was Henry Miller or Harry Miller was his name at the time. Um, he kind of met him and he said that, yeah, if you can put a team together and put a little, make a quick little demo in a couple of weeks to show us what you can do, you'll be considered. And so he grabbed me and like uh, several other people. It was Carl uh, who went on to Insomniac. I don't know where he is now. Paul, um, he went all over the industry. I'm not sure where he is now either. But a lot, these are like the, the core founders of Infinity Ward, right? So yeah. it's like, because we formed 2015. Uh, this was the, how 2015 got formed. So it was like, yeah, Carl, uh, Paul, uh, Ken, um, Michael Boone, who's still at Infinity Ward to this, or at the actual Activision on Infinity Ward to this day, uh, and Ziad, who's he's back at IW as well, um, myself, and I think we contracted with a couple people like Steve Kuda, who's a level designer we contracted with. He's he's gone on. He's on at Respawn now. I think he's still at Respawn. Uh, and eventually we grew and we hired like Matthew McCandlish and Todd Alderman, um, Paul, another Paul, Paul Messerly, if I remember correctly. Um, yeah, it was like, that's how 2015 formed. And we got the, the add-on pack for sin from a little two week demo. We all did remotely, uh, in quake. Uh, and then basically through that, we got made a name for ourselves. And my understanding was Todd Hollinstead, who was at it at the time. EA was looking for somebody to work on the PC version of Medal of Honor and they were approaching it and whatever and, and it was uh, it or some other local companies and, and like Todd basically referred them to us because he liked what we did on the add-on pack uh, and so we were like oh okay and then that was our big shot we, we worked on Allied Assault um, 
that's why I did my big claim to fame. I worked on, I was the brainchild behind the, the Omaha beach level. So, which is, um, and I just have to say this, like, I don't know, Richie, if you've played this, but it has to be one of my favorite moments moments still ever in gaming. Cause there are a few moments and this is what's so surreal to me and Richie, I think sometimes when we talk to you guys, right. Is the surrealness of uh, talking to people who literally created uh, some of the memories that we have from our own gaming moments. And I mean, we'll, we'll get into it because Benson, you're, you're, you're like some of the other guys like Jay, who we've talked to at Epic uh, and DJ. Jay's awesome. Yep. Yeah. And DJ that you would know uh, well as well from, I'm sure from in- Infinity Warden and, and other areas. Yeah, right? yeah. But, Some but, guy. What, oh, yeah. but what's yeah. really funny to me is, yeah. And what's really funny to me is two things. One is that level, which is literally the saving private Ryan level for you guys who don't know or remember uh, you, you open the, the doors opens to the speeching vehicle that you're in and you're uh, immediately just met by all these bullets and stuff that felt um, for the time in particularly uh, like uh, like an insane amount of stuff going on for whatever the computing power was at the time. It was a nightmare. To me. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I'm keen to hear more about it. But the other thing that also strikes me, which is really interesting with you guys, is you all seem to be creative across the board. Like I'm looking at, you know, people who are not watching this, you know, Benson's uh, got a ton of guitar. You're into your music. DJ's yeah. into his mu- music. Dave's creative, Michael P- Mike Porter, who we talked to earlier, is also like physically creative, does his own like awesome. figurines yeah. and stuff. Tara Brannigan, who we talked to, Tara is very much into making mm-hmm. her a, a jewelry and, and like, uh, so you guys have, it, it just strikes me that you've got this in, incredible uh, creative minds in general, but so to take that creativity, to create that level. So tell us, you said it was crazy to make. Why was that level? So, well, the first, so what had happened was they approached us to make Medal of Honor. And then like, you know, we had to see, it was funny because like, we went to go go see Saving Private Ryan and we all were bawling at the end of it out the theater. Like, this is awful. I don't know if I can work him again. And then we got this contract and we're like, <laughs> Hey, maybe we should do uh, that beach. <laughs> but I was like, I recommended it. It, it originally, we, we said like with limitations on the game, we were like, no, that's not gonna be possible. And I remember going into Vince's office and signing him. It's like, we got to do this level. And, he, and I was explaining to him, like, here's all the shortcuts we could do and how I could make this work. Um, at least from a scripting perspective, the scripting part was what I was going to be in charge of uh, and how we could also make it work uh, in terms of like, you know, the size of the level and the, the constraints of the quake engine and stuff like that at the time. And so it was more like a lot of spawn tricks, you know, waves, the way they would come up through the way you would work your way through the beach. And we talked about like how we could make these uh, dummy AI that were basically like, they just follow paths and they don't, they follow paths and they can play de- certain animations or, or they'll die when, when we shoot them with a bullet or something like that. It's like very, very low. Cause CPU, CPU power is the big thing. Yeah. Okay. If I remember correctly, that was what was eating us up the most. Uh, Cause 3d cards were on the scene, like the 3d effects and all that kind of stuff. But it was, uh, hmm. I want to say it was, it was, the CPU was what was killing us the most because we had we came up with a lot of good tools to solve rendering uh, in terms of like we we created a, <laughs> we call it, it like so one of the things when you made a quake level is you built it you built it out of BSP and models and all this kind of stuff and then you compile it there's the BSP port compiler the compiler and then there's the what's called the viz visibility it does all that and that's how it would pre-compute the visibility in it and it does it in a, in a way of like if I'm standing here what can I see and so it's just kind of loading a database as you walk through various zones to level to say, load this, now unload this. And so that it was a way of pre-computing it in advance, but it always was automated. Um, my understanding of it was automated was because I think it was like, 
I could be completely wrong, but I, I want to say I heard somebody explain once that when Carmack wrote the thing, he was very much on board like a computer would do it better than a human. Or like it was some or somebody who it was either him or somebody who created that. Uh, that was the mentality, which is funny enough. That's a mentality that came back even at Naughty Dog and a bunch of stuff we would argue about about whether or not a computer should pre-calculate stuff or or a human could do it. Turns out the answer is both. But anyway, always both. Uh, but anyways, I, uh, so what we did was we I remember having discussions with our programmers at night and it was Robert who I, who said I, I brought this up to and when people were saying, no, you can't do that. Robert's like, hey, you can. I was saying like, hey, can we manually tell it and draw boxes and say this box can see that box, this box can see that box, can this box see that box. And that way we we called it the man viz tool hmm. because it was manually manual viz it was where that came from so uh, you know we were all a bunch of immature boys what do you expect uh in terms of like the silliness and way we create things anyways so yeah he he literally whipped it together in a night i want to say he adjusted the compiler and made a real simple thing in the in the quake editor it was either night or two nights or something something he did it insanely fast the guy yeah. like to this day i think he left games and went into mathematics it's from i want to say is the oh, last crazy. thing i, I I heard I heard about him. Wish I'm totally forgetting everyone's last names, and I I feel like bad for that. But um, yeah, he was just a genius. Like if I remember correctly, I think he was the one when they were working on COD Modern Warfare, the original. I think Robert was the one they assigned to doing the PS3 port. Oh yeah, uh, because PS3 was incredibly difficult to work on compared to an yeah. Xbox 360. Yeah, it's Fine. notorious that, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, and it was like he's the one who has the break. Like you give him the challenge like that, and he's like all right, let's do it. Like, he's the one who's like, you give him that kind of level challenge. And he goes, I think that's why he, he probably wanted to just get out of that and go into mathematics. But anyways, um, so yeah, it was like a combination of all these tricks. Like I realized like, you know, trying to think about like, well, how do you make a game slash experience out of it? We were all influenced by like Half-Life 1 at the time. And uh, the big thing about Half-Life 1, and if you read a lot of the interviews back then was they wanted to create this in-game storytelling that happened around you but it always had to happen usually between a layer right because you yeah. couldn't interfere that was the the challenge was half-life one showed that it could be done and that you can create really uh uh evocative moments uh of storytelling from from a first person perspective but you just couldn't interact with them we're like well how do we make it so you can interact with them how do we put it right in front of you and remove that barrier that was kind of our goal and that's the whole game is full all, all i mean full. and it Whoa. played out nicely right because that sequence is fine to kind of be a bit on rails because, and it wasn't completely on rails, but because you had such a clear objective, which was get off the yeah. beach and, and move forward. So it was, it was very much, a, it felt, I think when the story compels you kind of driving forward and being compelled to, to keep a quite narrow patch, I think it's fine. I think the problem is when you play a game and you feel like it's doing that and there's no obvious reason. And I mean, right. I remember even you talking about things like Last of Us, and it's crazy, right? So the, when we when we talk when we continue talking to Benson here as we go, right? So Benson's probably you've worked on every single title. I think that most of the titles you worked on, I've touched in some way. Same now when you're at Blind Squirrel as well. <laughs> I, I don't know if if you worked with a Mass Effect uh, remaster, but I've, I've played not, those. No. Through, uh, I came but, after that, but but they're amazing, right? And there there are some mm -hmm. uh, absolutely outstanding things that you're going you do you guys do there. But I remember you talking about Last of oh, Us as you. well that that you kind of had to figure out how you could make 
uh, how you could how you could make people go through these paths that you needed them to go to and unload the memory behind them by yes. uh, basically saying blocking the exit or doing whatever you did, but it felt natural. And I think that one yep. thing that I really appreciate with the stuff that you've worked with and you seem to be a very much a driver for is this idea of creating a, a natural ability to funnel people down a path. I mean, it's not, I can't take sole credit for that, but it is a no. belief of mine that I've come to is the fact that, yeah, you want to, um, you want to make the experience feel as natural as possible. And, and like, cause I, I know it when I even, you know, I play games and you can like, you could tell and it's, and it's, I'm going to say this because it's the game that comes to mind, but it's no offense to the company Raven uh, because they've made some amazing games. And I remember like when Her I think it was Heretic 2 came out. Oh, I remember those games. It, it, it's like, the game itself is awesome. Those games were fun, but Heretic 2, it, I think it was the first one where they put um, they put it into the Quake engine from the, the, the Doom engine. And the problem is, is like, for example, they had this town you're going to go through and it literally was just right angle, right angle, yeah. right angle. You know, it's like you literally walk forward, take a 90 degree turn, walk forward, yeah. take a 90 degree turn to the left, walk forward, take a 90 degree turn to the right. And it was like, you're just going down this winding path. And then they just decorated the halls to look like, medieval buildings and then mm. put blockades at the end of the roads that you couldn't go past and i'm like it just didn't feel like a, it didn't feel like a medieval village you could tell it's like okay yeah. i'm clearly being i'm going around something that doesn't make sense but i can't fault them at the same time because it's like that was a real pain in the butt to work with the mm. quake engine was like not a quake one engine especially that was hard like that you know having to deal with the rendering and again dealing with the visibility issues it likes right angles you start doing and even the bsp generation the moment you start doing non-orthogonals and then if you go outside the orthogonals the, the key is you want to stay on very very nice angles in the fact that there's a very like 45s and 30s and you know 60s and stuff like that where it's like there's definitive it can still snap to a grid in a sense right because you can sit there and make up like you can think of a the angles like a rise and a run it was okay as long as ever, as long as this line is always like four to, four over and one up that I know every four over one up, I can I can put something on the grid and everything snaps to the grid nice, nice, and therefore the BSP won't complain. If I start doing weird stuff where it's like, well, now I got to go in between the grid and I got to place this, I got to place this building and I'm just going to slide it so the the, verti the vertices aren't snapped to the grid anyway. The BSP compiler goes, and then it would just start making faces disappear. So they had a challenge like crazy to go to deal with. I mean, you are, way, real quick, just, you are, you are just levels a behind yeah. my even my remote knowledge of level design. But I got, uh, I, I, I got a little geeky there. But real quick, back <laughs> onto the back on the Omaha Beach thing. Also, just to give, I always like to give credit where credit is due. It was I was the one that it was the brainchild and pushed to get into the game. I did all the scripting on it and all the gameplay tuning. It was Steve Fukuda did the um, he did the level geometry and the interiors and stuff like that and the lighting. So I want to give him the credit where his credit was due because he, you know, obviously the beach is oh. important. It wouldn't be what it is. Um, and the other cool thing to your point about the corridors was that was one of the other reasons I was talking about why we could do it is the fact like, well, negative space worked with us because the whole thing is you're, you've got this onslaught of machine guns. And if you go out behind cover, you die. So we could just yeah. restrict you to where we wanted you to go saying, all right, here's all the cover is. And you can tell there's a, there's a part where the cover just stops. And if you go beyond that, uh, that's how we kept you going that way. Uh, we, that's how we kept you from going that way. You just, it just, it would kill you. And then for the main beach run up, there's like created the, it's kind of like in thirds. There's the first part with all the ship and the, and the hedgehogs. Uh, oh, yeah. There's like a thing in the middle where you had to run into this pit. 
because there was a giant artillery explosion. And then there's the final charge up to the to the to the shingle, if I remember correctly, what they called it. And so, like for that, I tried to create it in lanes. So, like the first part had nice. three lanes, and there were basically the script was just set. It just whatever lane you went into, that's where we focused the guys. And so if you went to like one side and then walked all the way, because most people aren't going to like go here and then decide I'm going to fight my way over to the right with all this machine gun fire and then go up that way. It would work, but it, it kind of locks you into like a, a zone, if you will. And so yeah. that's how we knew where to focus most of the people. So if you walked out of that zone, you're like, it got a little barren until you reach the next zone and then it would populate. So that's how we kept a lot of the, the, the NPCs off the screen as best we can. And then, yeah, we brought the fog in. So that way we, we, the beach was just enough so that way you could, I think the fog was brought in enough so you could barely see the, the machine gun flashes coming from ahead, but you couldn't quite see the bunkers until you got a little bit further ahead. Maybe I might be misremembering that, but yeah, yeah lots of such dirty a tricks. I, I remember the first time I played that level and it, it felt like when you were doing it, it felt like you weren't going to make it, you know, because there was that yeah, many good. people <laughs> shooting at you. And you thought, yeah. how how am I going to get up this beach? This is impossible. And then somehow you manage it, right? But the, mm -hmm. the thing about the design was it it gave you that fear. Um, and I'm sure mm -hmm. it's nothing like D-Day would have been, right? But it just gave no, you a little sample crazy. of, of oh, this must be have been so overwhelming for the dudes who had to run up that beach. Which was intentional. That was part of the intention yeah. was to show like, hey, th this is... Like I remember focus testing it and I'm watching someone play it for the first time or whatever. And they couldn't even get off the boat in 10 tries, right? They tried getting, they just died before they even yeah. got to the first piece of cover. And I was like, Oh, I probably need to, I probably need to make that easier. And then afterwards, like we asked the person like, so did, was this level frustrating? Did you like it? It's just awesome. don't change it. I'm like, okay. Yeah. <laughs> I guess it's working. I think it was yeah. one of the first moments in gaming where I genuinely felt fear, like as I was moving forwards, because, oh, that's and, cool. I, and, I, and I think in the, in, in the sense, because, I mean, I'd felt horror uh, and like, you know, I'd played Doom yeah. and all that kind of stuff, which is gory and it's got other details. But the fact that I was playing the, playing, you know, the, the, the Saving Private Ryan bit, uh, I was suddenly worried about my, con my character. I was conscious about it because I was like, there are so many things hitting and flying past me. And I, I don't know, there was, there was an intimacy to it that made it feel real, probably partly enhanced by having seen uh, Saving Private Ryan as well, because I'm sure that kind of like fixated into my brain and went, oh my God, you're in that scene on that beach now and that's what's unfolding. And the same panic that I think I would, I had when I saw that clip in the movie, because it's so well shot as well by Simon Spielberg. Uh, going underwater and popping up and yep. down. I thought that was going through that. And I remember I just kind of went, I don't want to do that. Like it was, it was challenging for me because I was like, this is insane. I'm going to have to fight this. And what I've done here, all I've done is got to the place where I need to then start combat, which is- Yes, like, then you have to go through the actual- Yeah. The but I actually have, yeah. And I got to give the same thing, give credit to like uh, Boone, I think it was Matt and uh, the animators at the time. It might've been the other Paul, the Paul Messerly as well was like, like we took moments from the movie like the medic moment mm. and all that stuff and depending on the path you went to i i split them up so that way if you played the game and went different ways you'd see different mm. uh different things but they put in all these great animated sequences of like guys on the beach injured you know somebody running up and going to blow up the hedgehog and all that kind of stuff these mm. so it's kind of like it, it it was that for it was that start of like creating those little moments in the action like the half-life thing like how do you mm. do it in front of you where you can't screw it up and it was easy because it's like all right it blocks your collision. You can't go through it. You can't mess this thing up. 
and it's yeah. going to sit here and just loop and play this animation. So it's like, oh, that's a way we can do it. You yeah. can't interfere with it. Um, so it's yeah, credit to. I mean, like I said, it's. I, oh, it's always I a team one pushing right? for. Exactly. Right, yeah. I, I just I don't want to. I just realize I don't want people to think like, oh, you did it by himself. He's the so no, no, no. The, whole, and, the team no, made it a level what it is. I'm just saying I'm the one that fought for it to get totally, into the game. Scripted, totally. You know. I, and we're talking to one person, like because it wouldn't be yeah. feasible for us to talk to fifty. So I mean, like, I have but to we're talk getting about we, my perspective. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So we're getting your view, which is 100 fine, and that's how the other guys have presented as well. Thanks for listening today. Next episode, we carry on our conversation with Benson and hear about Naughty Dog and the making of The Last of Us. If you like this episode, please leave us a review on your podcast platform. See you next time.